This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Joey Logano, the NASCAR driver, has been front and center in the racing world for well over a decade and is the reigning Cup Series champ, giving him two for his career. We spent the day with him in North Carolina, where we discussed his pursuit of greatness. 30 wins, two championships later, here we are. And the run-ins he's had along the way. If I'm not winning, he's not winning. <laughs> That's for sure. Logano reflects on his childhood in the spotlight. Had three contracts in front of us as a 15-year-old kid. It's just, it's unheard of. And lowest point. I cried like a baby, man. I just, I thought my career was over. But we get started with the story of how Joey courted his wife, Brittany. So Brittany, I guess I'll take you back to the beginning. Brittany and I, we met uh, at Extreme Ice, my parents' ice rink. I did the little concession stand and I made French fries. And I'm telling you that guy, like, he ate more French fries than any person I ever knew. And I was like, okay, like this guy just, he's loading up on carbs right now, you know? Okay. So he'd come back all the time and um, we'd talk and yeah. It'd be because he would look at the schedule for when you would be there and make a point of always being there himself, yeah. apparently, right? He told me that later on. I didn't actually know he was looking at my schedule and he admitted this. My sister introduced me to her once. And then we met again at a Christmas party there. And so then I was 16, she was 15. And so we dated for a couple months and then she friend zoned me because I was the most awkward 16 year old you've ever met. Cause oh, all I did was raced, like, that and, was it. And what I heard on that front was you were very energetic in phone calls, but then yeah. like incredibly quiet in oh, she person. Was hot. <laughs> I locked right up. <laughs> you gotta know. So I was I was homeschooled from from third grade on, and so my interaction with people was always at the racetrack, which was mainly guys, right? And so I was comfortable in that situation. But I never saw any girls my age, like ever, right? So she was like the first girl I ever really talked to, and so I would lock up. I'd just get nervous and stop. So. Eventually she friends on me, which I don't really blame her. Looking back at it, I wouldn't date me either. I understand your way of uh, trying to hit on her was uh, pull a chair out from yeah. under her yeah. at uh, well, a, a company party. I broke her butt too, but <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, a, that was our, our break the ice moment is that she, she was going to sit down right in front of me and it just seemed like the perfect opportunity to yank the chair out and she went down. She wasn't impressed. <laughs> Got her to talk to me though. <laughs> and I was like, okay, like this is, this is awkward, you know? And he said, well, I'll make it up to you. And I was like, okay. And he said that he would take me to the ice rink that night and we went skating and it was all closed down. And it was the whole, you know, Adam Sandler moment on the ice with the lights down and the music and the whole thing. So take me to the proposal that started at the Hibachi restaurant. <laughs> Boy, you got all the, the background. Okay. So yeah, so um, we dated for a couple of years and I got a ring for her, but I'm a car guy. And she was driving around this old Jeep Cherokee that was gonna break down any second. I actually did a couple times, it's a piece of crap. And so her dream car was the T-Birds, like the 04, 05 T-Birds, like the, the ones that usually grandma's driving around. Uh, and she loved them. I said, like, well, perfect. I can find one of these. So I went on Auto Trader. I found a, a seafoam green T-Bird. And I thought, perfect. I, a car and the ring would be really cool. It's more like my style. So. And she had no idea. No. No, because I mean, it started off just a normal night. It was raining. It was like a Wednesday night, rainy night. It, was, uh, it happened to be 
uh, 11, 12, 13 was the date, um, which I didn't realize it was that date until that, that, that morning. And I was like, I'm gonna do it today. Like I had everything and it was 11, 12, 13. I thought, cool day. I'm going to do it today. We pulled up and it was dark and there was Christmas lights all up on the trees. And there was this 2004 T-Bird, which uh, that's my dream car. I love it. It is like a mint green color. He calls it a granny car, but I'm a granny at heart. And then he surprised me and asked me to marry him. I understand uh, you've lost the wedding ring on a I couple did. of occasions. Well, I'm on number two. And the first time, what happened? Oh, the first time we were, uh, our honeymoon was in Costa Rica and we were uh, kayaking or whatever, whitewater rafting, and uh, I flipped. <laughs> I flipped, it came back up, no ring. <laughs> so um, it was it it's to be actually funny because there's pictures of it. So it had to be like a place where apparently a lot of people wreck, and they had a photographer there, and it has me going down the waterfall before with it on my hand. And then it shows me flipping over and it's like shot by shot. And then I come back up and I'm like excited that I'm not going to the hospital in Costa Rica. And I have no ring on in that picture. So it, it's gone. It's gone. Like there's not even a chance of trying to find it. Didn't like another time, like when you were at a race? Oh, uh, I did. Okay. Yeah, I did in Phoenix. We won the race and at some point you're cheering, you're yelling or something and it flew off and someone found it for me in victory lane, which I'm lucky to have it. So I'm on, uh, I'm on the backup. This is the backup car. So the hardest part of having three kids under the age of five <laughs> is what? Um, the balance is tough. I, mean, I don't see bags under your eyes, though. I don't need much sleep, which is good. The guy's just like the Energizer Bunny, and he really does. Like We get up every morning, and we work out together, and he makes me better for that because I'm not a morning person. And so he's like, come on, let's go. Like Turning on the lights, jumping around. He's just... He's unbelievable. For me, the hardest thing is to try to give enough time to all of them. And naturally, like for me, your connection is, is usually with the oldest because they can do the most things, right? Like Hudson, it's, I could strap him in his go-kart and he can go. We can, we can go get ice cream together. It's, it's easier. He's five, mm -hmm. right? Jameson, uh, he's two and a half. He's, he's, our, he's our wild man. <laughs> he's, he's on the gas all the time. Uh, and you know, with Amelia, you know, she's a baby. So you know, you're just trying to keep that one alive. Uh, so you and your wife had kids at a pretty young age, um, but actually started trying a, a few years before that. So um, Brittany uh, has PCOS and she was diagnosed with that years prior and, and knew that it was gonna be challenging for her to get pregnant. It's a polycystic ovary disorders. So anyways, we knew that was gonna be an issue. We went through the, the IVF uh, process and, and knowing that's, that's kind of, you, you gotta kind of think that's gonna be a year and a half or so before like you go through the whole, the whole thing. Right? Some, it's just trial and error through a lot of that. What was that experience like for the two of you? I think anybody who does IVF is hard, but at the same time, I also feel like we're blessed that we got to do IVF because a lot of people don't have that option. What would you say you most learned from going through it? Um, from IVF, I think I most learned like the depth of his love, I guess, of Joey's, just because I feel like I've always felt loved by him, but I feel like you get sick and you're tired and you don't want to go out with your friends and things that we've always done and like to do together and the energy level just isn't 
there as much. And so having Joey there saying, it's okay, like, we'll just hang in. And so I think that that's something that I learned about him and it just made me love him more. It's more stressful on Brittany than it was me, right? Like I was, I'm more like the support, right? I'm, I'm helping along, I'm doing what I can do to help. Uh, but for women in that situation, it, it consumes them, right? And because it becomes like their obsession of like, it's, it's a goal they're trying to achieve, right? And it's challenging. So we kind of went through the, the process. Uh, we had Hudson and then Jameson through that process. Uh, and at that point, we kind of were like, okay, we got our two boys, like, we're good, like, we think. And then uh, Amelia showed up as a, as a miracle, right? Like, the doctor told us, right, we can't have kids. I got super nauseous and I was like, this is really weird. Maybe I'm getting sick. And I stopped at a CVS and, and went home and took the test and I, I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh. And yeah, and then we had our little miracle, Amelia. And so um, there was a miscarriage in between all that too, which was kind of like a sign of hope that like, wow, maybe something's reset here or something interesting's happened. What, what do you um, learn so, from going through that? Uh, that, was, that was tough. That was in 2020. This was a hard day because it was championship four, made the championship four, racing for a championship that week. Um, and I went to the doctor that morning, Brittany was bleeding a lot. Um, went to the doctor, doctor gave us bad news. Uh, that day was media day uh, for going into the championship. And I was supposed to do it here at Clutch. And, um, and the doctor's appointment lasted longer. Brittany's a wreck, we're both a wreck. And, and then I got my phone ringing saying, hey, where are you? You're late. And I'm like, well, a little bigger fish to fry right now. <laughs> you're, yeah. like, you're trying to figure it all out. And then, and then you got to turn it on and say, hey, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to race for a championship this weekend. While Brittany's had the actual miscarriage during the race in Phoenix while I'm racing for a championship. Like, it's just an emotional weekend. Uh, and we we're so close to winning it, actually. And it just all didn't work out. But uh, just to... It's tough. Like he could have decided to let me kind of cry by myself and do things a little bit more on my own and I have to go to work and he could have pulled back. And I feel like that's not what he did. He pulled in and he pulled me in. It, it seems like he's had some of the most professional success during times that the there's been most disruption or um, chaos, even if it's positive chaos in uh, the, the personal life. And I'm curious your perspective on that. I think he just does better under pressure. And I think that when he sees things in his life building up and he sees that there's a lot going on, I think it makes him almost focus more on work because he doesn't want his work to notice and for them to think that he's stepping back from things because of his personal life. 2018, it was a hard year just because our life got flipped upside down, upside down right? Anybody that's had kids probably would agree that the first kid is the biggest transition, right? And then we won uh, 2020, um, you know, with Brittany and, and her miscarriage and all that, we, we almost won. You know, this year in 22, Amelia is born, we won, right? <laughs> Honestly, I think it's coincidence. I don't, I don't see my focus change or having a distraction being a good thing. Like, I just think it happened to work out that way. It's when I'm racing and you know, I'm at the racetrack, it's 100% racing. When I'm at home and I'm with my family, it's 100% family. And that's how I, I try to do the best I can at everything. Like, it's all the same. Mm -hmm. I owe that 
to not just Roger Penske, but everybody that works there, my sponsors, the, you know, the engine shop, like there's thousands of people that count on me to drive the car after they've done all the work to get their bonuses, right? That's how I look at it. Like I got to do this for them as much as I do it for my own family. Right? They're counting on me for, for Christmas gifts under the Christmas tree, right? Like somebody eventually it comes down to the guy holding the wheel. And so I can't minimize that when my personal life has changed and that's taking more time. I heard the uh, highs are great and the lows are terrible to use somebody's word. Yeah, like when I'm so excited and when we're down, it consumes me a lot to where I'm really like, I just want to figure it out. I just want to really get down to the bottom of why we're off or why something's not going right. Um, just because I want to be the best, right? I mean, that's, that's it, right? Like, there's no sense of racing if you can't win. Like, I don't, I'm not in this for fun anymore. Like, I like doing what I'm doing, but I'm doing it to win. I think you saw a sports psychologist at, at some point. Um, how, if at all, does that help? I mean, I still work with, with somebody right now, too. And, and to me, early in my career, I got, I got beat up a fair amount, right? Because I, I came in as the young hot shot, you know, won all the races growing up. It was easy for me. Like, I didn't have to work at my craft. It was just talent that got me there. Um, and everyone, you know, would fill you up with all the BS of how great you are and how great you're going to be. When you're 16 to 18 years old, do you believe all that? You know, you, you just do. I must be pretty damn good. <laughs> and then I got to the cup level when I was, 18, 19, and realized that like all the guys that were really good growing up are in this level now, and I suck. Because <laughs> now I have to go to work. And so I had to learn to lose was a real big piece of, of my career, I think, is this learning how to uh, accept the loss and really dissect what, what went wrong and really try to figure out what you don't know, right? Although, what was your saying for about a good loser? Show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. That's <laughs> not my, I took that from somebody, but that's a great point though. Those are probably the hardest years of my life and career um, because I got to the point where I was like, uh-oh, I don't have a backup plan and it's not looking too pretty, right? After three years of cup racing, I got two wins and you know, for two of those years, I've been talking about replacing me in, in the car I was driving. It's like, I'm in trouble. Right? I got to the point where all I had was an Xfinity ride, which is a step down. And once you go down, your chances of coming back is tough because you're already branded as the guy had tried and didn't make it. So it kind of got put in the spot to where, yeah, I was, I was not that confident in myself. Or should I be? Um, even though I was making little gains and stuff, I was running out of time. Um, and even to this day, like those things that I learned in those moments of, about myself and how I needed to prepare and how I'm really not that good, like that, those things is what drives me today, knowing what I need to do to prepare for races and, and win. Um, and, so I cherish those moments now more than anything. I feel like it's a successful person type thing. It's like this mental dysmorphia and you just feel just not good enough. And it makes him just try harder in everything that he does um, and makes him better, I guess, than, than most people to me. What about now? I, now I, I, I lean on uh, a guy we work with at the race team, to be honest with you. And, and I talk to him more about situations on our team and, and maybe the best way to handle them, um, which Brittany helps with that as much as anything too. But 
it's good to have another sounding board mm -hmm. and somebody that understands the psychology behind a lot of situations. And as a leader of the team, uh, you need to you need to do it the correct way. And 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 I want everyone to be behind each other. He'll be on his phone and he'll be answering emails in the middle of the night. I'll roll over. It'll be three, four in the morning. And I, I don't know if that's anxiety or if that's just, again, he feels those those pressures at that moment. Brittany made the comment that uh, you have said to her before that you feel like you aren't uh, you aren't enough. Yeah. Yeah. No, I always feel like that. Um, and, and that means what? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, this is becoming a therapy session, I was going to say, now it's it? becoming a therapy <laughs> What do you mean by it? <laughs> you want me to lay down here for a second? Go for it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I, mean, I guess I never feel like I do enough, um, even though I probably am. I feel like people who have big careers, big jobs, people who are gone a lot with their jobs, um, they, they feel like they're not enough at home. They feel like they're not giving enough to their kids. They're not giving enough to their wives. They're not giving enough to their job. And so you never feel like you're giving 100% to anything. And so to me, I feel like he lives very um, to the point of exhaustion all the time. He just doesn't sleep much. The guy's just like the energizer bunny. I never sit down and watch TV. Um, you know, it's, it's go from before the sun comes up till after the sun goes down. Like that's just... Who I am, and I don't like missing opportunities. And when you're in the, the position I'm in right now, which is a great position, right? Like we just won the championship. You want to take advantage of every opportunity that comes your way because this is like a great spot to be in, right? God's given me this great platform. You want to, you know, hit it from the foundation side and charitably, like this is a year. Let's hit, let's hit it hard. Like I got the biggest platform I'm I can get, right? Uh, top of my sport. Let's nail that. My kids are at a very moldable age, like, don't forget about them. I, I gotta race, I, I, I gotta, we gotta back up this championship. I, this, this slump that people say you get into after you win a championship. My mission this year is to prove everybody wrong that that's not happened to our team. I, I prioritize racing in my family, always number one, and then all the other things I feel like I honestly do a half-assed job at. But I always keep you know, racing in my family prioritized because that's, that's what leads the ship. That's what gets us going, that's our fuel. I know you aren't much of a goal person, uh, but what are your aspirations? When? I, it is the most, like to me, my aspirations are like, I, I don't look much past the hood pins when it comes to goals for me. Like I'm not looking that far down the road. I'm looking at tomorrow all the time. I can't call the future. I, that's in God's hands, that's not me. Um, right, I can try to, to handle what I can in, the, in today, but what goes on years from now, I don't know what's going to happen. You, you have said before something to the effect of you feel like you probably should have won four or five championships by now. Why? Yeah. Well, because I should have. <laughs> like, I really, I don't know. I look at, uh, you know, my first shot at the championship four. Uh, I mean, I don't know if it's a should have. I mean, I hit the wall and made a mistake. Right, like that, kind of the first time in it as young, I kind of needed that. But if I look at, um, you know, 20, uh, what was that, 14, 16, with Carl, you know, racing for the, the win. Um, he throws a block and we get tangled up on the infield there. Probably should have won that championship. You know, I, I made the move on the restart to, to make that happen. It was probably gonna get ahead of him and, and I was a late race restart. I was probably gonna win that, that championship. 2015 with the whole Kansas situation, 
we were the most dominant car on the racetrack. We were going for, we were leading in Martinsville for four wins in a row. <laughs> we, were, we were on fire uh, and we didn't make championship four because of that. Right? Like, so I, there's a few right there, right? 2020, I'm racing for a championship in the lead with 30 to go after a pit stop, second and a half in front of Chase. Boy, this one's in the bag, we're in good shape. Get a tire vibration, can't even see where I'm going, the car goes to hell. Like, like, gosh, like, so that's when someone says, oh, two-time champion, how's that feel? I'm like, you don't know how many I should have. I think I should have like five of these things. You think there could still be opportunity to go down as the most accomplished ever? Yeah, I mean, I, no one's gonna beat Richard Petty, <laughs> right? I mean, 200 wins, it's not, it's not possible. Um, I'd, li I'd like to say it is, but shoot, I mean, we don't race as much mm -hmm. as, as they did then. Um, the, the landscape of our sports is completely different. Is seven championships out of the question? No, it's not out of the question at, at all. We get to the championship four, we're the favorite every time. Like, I, I really feel like that, no matter what. Um, that nobody mentally can be stronger than, than myself as a driver and my race team, no matter how, how that plays out. So uh, NASCAR, they pull like 10,000 fans um, where they rank drivers in different categories. I think you know what yeah, I know I'm, I'm about, talking yeah. about. And yeah. you uh, come in uh, number two, which yeah. is an amazing score, number two overall. But you said what when you found that out? <laughs> so this is this week, actually. I, I got this news. and uh, It takes your likability score. It takes your popularity. It takes your on-track performance. Uh, and it kind of ranks you within your competitors. And it averages out to where when you put all that together, I'm, I'm P2. And uh, which is not first. That's bottom line, right? It's, it's not first. I want to move that up, right? So on my on track was P1, so that's perfect, right? You can't get better than that. And then, you know, my likability and my, my popularity is, is lagging on that. And the question was, well, why am I not first? And why am I like fifth and sixth over here? I mean, like that's, that's not the goal. Like right. The goal is to be first in every, every category. Mm -hmm. um, just the way I'm wired. Just want to be first in everything. I like winning a lot and I like solving problems that come, you know, why didn't we win? And yeah, I want to win that too. Okay, you mentioned <laughs> you like winning a lot though, um, but to what extent does losing affect you more than winning? It, losing definitely affects me more than winning, 100%. Definitely does. Typical race win, there's a 20 minute high where it's just awesome. And then it's, okay, cool, what's next? Because um, it's, it's, it's gotta be out the windshield all the time. And yeah, it's just losing makes you just wanna figure out why you lost and you go back to work. Uh, so either way, you get home and you go back to work by the time it's over. Because <laughs> yeah. there's always next week, there's always next year. Um, one of my favorite quotes Roger says is, is not to trip on your press clippings, right? And which is another way of saying, look out the windshield. Right? Don't, don't get too reliant on what you did yesterday, because uh, it doesn't matter. You've had run-ins over the years with fellow drivers. It's gotten better, though, um, <laughs> and you've acknowledged that. Uh, how so? For one, the sport has changed, and two, I have changed. Uh, not necessarily on the racetrack for me, but how I've handled situations post-race uh, has gotten a lot better. Um, and I've also been around for 15 years now in a couple championships and that changes a lot too so so Layton, like um, what changes in in you that causes you to act differently well i think if you look at the sport when i first came in 
I was considered the most aggressive driver on the racetrack, and I was. Now, I'd say I'm average when it comes to aggression. Not because I changed, I, I'm not any less aggressive than I was, but it's that that mentality has been adapted from a lot of the field and especially the younger guys that have come in since then, right? I came in against the guys who were established that had been there for a while. They had this give and take rule that, that, you know, on restarts, they weren't like going three, four wide. They weren't making the big bold moves. <laughs> like if you threw a block, it was like, I can't believe you did that to me, right? Now it's accepted. You throw a block, it's like, yeah, yeah well, throw a block, no big deal, right? Like, it's, the game has changed. So a lot of the off-track, post-race altercations go away because it's accepted uh, a little bit. Like, to, to me, I mean, it's simple, right? Everyone talks about this, this unwritten rule of, of driver etiquette and, and what is that? And, and everyone probably has a different one. To me, it's, you wreck me, I wreck you back. Right, that's, that's what it's gonna be. Uh, and, and if I wreck someone, I expect it back. Just part of it. Mm -hmm. um, as it. As it should be, right? It's self-policing that way. Your dad, Tom, who's been hugely successful in his own right, used to get in your ear when you were younger and tell you to go after people. Like, uh, explain <laughs> why. Yeah, he did. Um, I will say I have regrets on the way I did, did some of that. I wear my emotions on my sleeve. That's Logano's dad, Tom. At that point in time, if I told Joey to run through a brick wall, he'd run through a brick wall. If I tell Joey, go, go over there and fight Kevin Harvick, he'll go over there and fight Kevin Harvick. And I was a, I was a jackass, without a doubt. And I learned a lot. I love my dad. <laughs> I love my dad. He's got a, a, a huge heart and he's really, really smart. But there's also a point where you have to let your kids figure it out and fight their own fights. The stupidest thing I ever did was we were running Hooters Pro Cup in Florida, and they called some penalty on Joey or whatever, and I went to the official on Pitt Road, and the tower is up there, you know, so he's got his headset on. You tell them this, this, and the guy goes, I ain't telling them nothing. Or I ripped the headset off the guy's head. I put the headset on me, and I yelled at the tower direct. I mean, it don't get much dumber than that, you know. <laughs> I could have ruined his career. I was that stupid his emotions are boom he's he's emotional like i am right and he's boom he's in the middle of it right and and now you got dad there fighting with you in a professional sport like right? yeah and and i can't shake that especially these days it's, it can't be forgotten it lives on youtube okay here's a, a more consequential one he implied uh you know when denny hamlin got the injury where he busted his back that he felt like because of him getting people riled up that something he did played into that. Looking back at that, what do you do differently? I don't know how different it honestly looks. Um, he hooked me in Bristol the week before, showed no remorse and ran his mouth. You opened the door. And wouldn't you have it that we're racing for the win the next week? Right, so now you got someone that wrecked you and showed no respect to you or no remorse about the situation and actually talked more crap about it after he wrecked you and now you're racing for a win you're going in the final corner the next week what are you gonna do well i know one thing he's not winning right like <laughs> if i'm not winning he's not winning <laughs> that's for sure I, I don't think i changed that i don't change that part of it and roger called me that night and he says i got joey's i got joey's back don't worry about it he he did what he had to do and we're proud of him that was the beginning of Everybody realizing we're not pushing Joey Logano around anymore. He's going to start pushing back. As an old Italian, you know, you're, 
that's my boy. You know, you're gonna fight back. That's what we do. So if Danny came up to me and said been... after Bristol and said, "Hey, man, I screwed up. I didn't mean to get into yeah. you. You know, whatever," I would react different, right? It kind of goes to the same thing. Like I had the Kenza thing, right? And that was in 2015. We had the best year of my career going, uh, as far as wins. Won three in a row. We were going for three wins in a row um, in Kansas. He fenced me. Went in the next corner and said, you're not fencing me, eye for an eye, right? So I hooked him. And my, I would not change any of that part at all, right? Like, I know what happened in the car. Matt knows what happened in the car. I wouldn't have changed any of that. What I should have done differently is post-race talk to Matt and explain to him my side of the story. Maybe we could have gotten to the bottom of it. Fast forward a few years, right? So then he retaliates in, in Martinsville, wrecks me, takes us out of the championship four in a year that we probably should have won the championship. Most dominant car, at least, to, throughout the playoffs. And you fast forward two, three years after that, Matt and I had a conversation about what happened. And I explained to him, just like I explained to you, you put me in the wall, so you opened the door. And he understood that. And he said, man, I wish we had this conversation before Martinsville. I <laughs> said, me too. And because of not what I did on the racetrack, what I didn't do off the racetrack, it cost me a championship. And now I gotta live with that the whole life, right? It's a very expensive lesson to learn, <laughs> but I learned it. Kyle Bush, you were actually at his wedding. Um, <laughs> where do you think the relationship went wrong? I don't know if it's that wrong. I don't know, like it, we're competitors, we compete against each other. Our approach is different. Our driving styles aren't that different. He may not want to admit to that, but from all the stuff that I look at and, and review and stuff, we're very comparable. Um, off the racetrack, we couldn't be more different. I feel like I'm able to shut it off, like, like put a helmet on, I'm competitive, I'm selfish, I'm there for my, my job, I'm there for the, the families that build my car and, and they're expecting their bonuses. I can give a crap about everybody else, I don't care about them. But when I take my helmet off, I care about a lot of people. <laughs> like, I, yeah. I, I wanna be a nice person, I wanna be somebody that, that makes people better for knowing me. And so I can, I can flip the switch. He's trying to take food off my plate, I'm trying to take food off his plate. Well, that's just competition. He should hate me. I should hate him on the racetrack. Mm -hmm. But when we take our helmets off, we should be able to get along. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> what about uh, Tony Stewart? It's all kind of come full circle now, and it's, it's funny now. For majority of them, I get along with now, right? Like, Kevin and I have a great relationship. Um, Tony and I, shoot, he texted me the other day. I, I mean, we, we, we talk to each other, it's And because he's normal. A, nothing uh, but little rich kids who never had to work a day in his life. Oh, yeah, yeah, he called me Silverspin, right? And so he just called me Spoons forever. Which and at so the he time texted, He texted be... me the other day and said, hey, Spoons. Right? That's just what he calls me now, right? <laughs> but, but like, you know what, like, hey, listen, when Tony Stewart has a kid, guess what? He's a good silver spoon, right? <laughs> Just is, sorry. Tony made a lot of money driving a race car. <laughs> like, and, and so I can't help what I was born into. I'm sorry. Like, what am I supposed to do? I had a great opportunity to chase my dream. My dream was to drive a race car. My dad helped me a lot with that. But eventually, like, I had to, I had to do the work. 
but I did come in as the cocky, arrogant, know-it-all, 18-year-old kid. So you did right? yourself no favors. I didn't help on. myself. Yeah, right. No, I can understand what they're saying, right? Because cocky, arrogant kid coming in thinks he knows it all and going to come out here and try to, you know, rub elbows with everybody and be aggressive and all this, and and that's not okay, right? Like. I, I can see that's not okay. That makes sense too. What about Brad Kozlowski and the role he played in uh, you coming to Penske? Yeah, Brad, um, Brad, Brad. Brad's a friend of mine. Um, and so it's kind of funny, our relationship, my first Xfinity race was in Dover. I was the, supposed to be the hot, hot shoe coming in. I was driving uh, at the time the Gibbs Xfinity program was just lights out, winning all races. So I jumped out there, my first run, right? First practice I roll out, and I roll out right in front of Brad and just chopped him off, right? I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I didn't mean to. He flips me off down the back straight before I get out of third gear. <laughs> like, all right, that's <laughs> how so this is gonna go. And we had a couple like couple run-ins, and he was the young hot shoe coming in. I was kind of so we kind of had a natural little rivalry going. Uh, which eventually we both kind of had a similar path in our career, right? We both were supposed to be great. We both lost our jobs at, at the original place we were supposed to drive. And then we, he went to Penske first, ran there for a few years, won a championship, and then the opportunity that, that opened up, by the grace of God, uh, that, that the 22 opened up uh, is incredible. And he was the first person to call me and he said, I can't tell you what's happening, but it's big. And you need to call Roger Monday morning. It's like, okay, right? And this is right before the race. At that point, they're in search for a driver for the next year. I was out, I needed a ride. Um, so it kind of, it worked out perfectly. And he was, I was the one that he chose to, to drive the car uh, over there. He wanted as a teammate. And, and so- why do you think that, that was? Um, I think that he knew we were similar and that we can play off each other pretty well. We raced each other a lot, and I think he knew that, that as a teammate I can bring a lot to the table, that he knew I was gonna work hard. He saw that part of it. Um, I think he thought two young guys together could be a, a good thing, um, and it was. It was great. He was good at different tracks than I was, and I was better at him at other tracks, like you know the repaves and mile and a half was kind of like my thing, and he was good at the short track, wore out surfaces, and I learned a lot from him there. So it really made us both better. State of NASCAR. Um, you had said recently um, it's in a better spot than it may have ever been before. Before you answer, we did one with uh, Jimmy Johnson a, a year ago, and. Um, the interview ended up making news because he brought up how, you know, top driver salaries have been halved since, you know, 20, 2015. Same with some team revenues and younger drivers were having trouble getting uh, insurance. It's a tough sport. It's tough, for, it's tough for the owners. It's tough for the drivers, right? I had a great opportunity with my dad and all that. But also you gotta look at the timing of when it happened. I got signed when I was 15 years old to drive for Joe Gibbs Racing. They bought all my Pro Cup stuff. They, for three years, they paid for my development. You know, if that didn't happen, that's 750 to a million dollars a year to run what I was running for three years. Well, that's a pretty big strain on your family at that point, right? And like, were we gonna be able to do that? I don't know. I don't know how much longer my old man was gonna be all right with doing that. Right, like, and so that doesn't happen anymore. Plus I was getting paid to drive the car at 15 years old, right? Now, I mean, you look at the, the back half of the cup field, all of them are bringing money to drive the car. 
It's outside of Penske, Hendrick, Gibbs, uh, maybe a track house, um, you know, Stuart Haas type team for the most part. Everyone else is paying to drive. It's a bit of a broken system, um, but it's like that in all forms of motorsports. It's not like that in NBA, it's not like that in the NFL. If you're talented and you're good, you're in, right? Like, that's, that's it. You can be talented and good and never make it in, in, in motorsports, just because the cost of, of being there. And so when you look at the next gen car and what it's supposed to do, well, it should help that in theory. Um, and it has already with parity, right? It's helped with parity and making the cars similar, and it should help with cost. That's why you see more owners wanting to get into the sport, because they see an opportunity to make money with this thing, finally, as an owner. So you see that that piece of the sport is growing, and that's really good. Uh, the TV negotiations that are going on right now, uh, along with the teams negotiating with NASCAR, trying to get a big piece of pie. Right? Like, those things are happening. Uh, at the moment, and that's going to change the landscape of our sport. You have to give NASCAR a lot of credit for actively working to make changes. There's been the best year of viewership since um, 2018. Every sport goes through it's you a know, changes. It right. has to. It right. has to. The old way doesn't work, right? Because people consume the sport in different ways than they used to, right? It used to be amazing just to see a, a car go around a racetrack and, and a, a driver would win by two laps. Now we got fans complaining if someone wins by two seconds. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, okay, well, the sport's changed and things have changed and the fan has changed. Uh, and so we, we have to adapt and move and do different things because here, here's the, the truth. The viewership has gone down for every sport. Uh, and unfortunately, from the beginning of my career, I've watched it go down the whole time. Until the last two years, I've seen it go flat and now I'm seeing it go up, uh, which is, so cool to finally see and, and have that momentum. So if somebody said, Joey, whether you want to or not, um, you're now running the sport, uh, <laughs> the changes you would make would be what? <laughs> I don't know if that's a fair question to ask. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's always gonna be things, right? But maybe I don't see the whole picture at times, right? As a driver, you see uh, you're, you're one-sided at times. Um, but I would argue it's the same for NASCAR. There's times that they're one-sided and they don't understand what, what the drivers are going through, um, right? And, and I think, you know, if you look at last year, the next-gen cars introduced, the way we introduced that and the way we went through a lot of the, the, the testing and the design process, I probably would have done a lot of things differently. Um, with all that said, and as much challenges and, 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 in my opinion, failures that, that happened last year, it still was one of the best years NASCAR's ever had. Or maybe the best year they ever had. Um, because everyone worked together. And, and I think, you know, towards the summer months, you saw the drivers really get vocal about a lot of the issues with this car. M mainly safety that came along with it, right? Kevin Harvick and Denny Hamlin, most notably, yeah. Publicly, yes. Behind the scenes, there's a lot. Um, because we're all, we all were going through it together and the drivers were working closer together than ever because we see our, our peers getting hurt, right? Like, and you know, like, man, eventually it's gonna be my turn, right? And, and you, don't want, you just don't want that. And you don't wanna see it for your competitors, you don't wanna see it for yourself or your family. And so when nothing was happening throughout all that, the frustration level 
was at its max with the sport. I'm gonna be honest with you, I, I was so mad um, and, that, and that, that we're what? speaking to a wall about my life, right? And like, we have to do something and nothing was happening uh, until, honestly, Kevin and Denny made it public and now their they're back's up against the wall and they gotta do something. And this year we have a softer car, hopefully, all the stuff should be fixed. But your hopes is when you introduce a new car, it's doing all the right things for the sport financially, but you would assume it's gonna get safer too, right? <laughs> like, you know, just natural progression of, of technology, the car should get safer, and it, it did not. Um, so it, hopefully with the changes that have been forced to happen now and it's gonna happen, um, hopefully it's better, right? I mean, the, the numbers say it is, but until there's a wreck, you don't know. Uh, Penske, initially it was kind of almost a lifeline for you, but has since turned into a hugely successful relationship, obviously. Um, you've made the comment before that you and uh, Roger are never complacent. <laughs> uh, elaborate <laughs> on that. Um, yeah, I mean, well, look at Roger Penske. I think it speaks for itself. Uh, Roger's 80-something years old. Um, and has not slowed down a bit, right? Like he is just in search for growth all the time. Uh, and I admire that about him. You're not around in business for as long as Roger Penske's been and do it the wrong way, right? And there's an expectation that goes through the whole race team or anybody that works at Penske, right? The, 60-something thousand or 70,000, how many employees there is now that, that work at Penske one way or another, whether it's truck leasing or other businesses or dealerships, whatever, racing, um, right? Everybody knows there's a Penske way of doing things. It's the right appearance, it's the right you know, professionalism that you bring when you speak, when you talk to people, and win. Why wouldn't you want to be around somebody like that, right? If, if you're only as good as the people you're working with, well, why not be with the best? And so I've been very, very blessed to be in the situation that I'm in for the last 10 years and for a lot more. Uh, people have talked about switching teams before and you made the comment, uh, people always think the grass is greener on the other side, but it's just fertilized with <laughs> True. Everybody always assumes it's better somewhere else. Other jobs, right? There's, no, there's not as much loyalty in our world anymore. No, it's, it's they're doing it better over there. Well, why don't you just make it better where you're at? No, they jump ship because they do the easy thing and they leave and they go over there. That's, I don't wanna do that. Like, I don't wanna be known as the person that leaves when it gets hard, right? And it's the same way in, in, in relationships and marriages. And I get it, like there's some things you just can't fix, right? There's sometimes there's frustration, you try really hard and uh, you can't like, you can't, you can't make it work, got it. Um, that, that definitely can happen. Um, right? I've been, th been through that one time in my life with, with Gibbs and, and moving to Penske. Um, but you know, if you got something that's pretty dang good and have somebody that's, that's been loyal to you and, and has helped you grow and d done what Roger Penske's done for me, I got no reason to leave. I'll be here for a while, um, which is what I, I wanted. Right? I, I, I went in saying I wanted more years than they offered me um, because I, I had no reason to, to go anywhere else. I got Shell and Pennzoil, that's a great partner. I'm racing for someone that's 
that wants to win really, really bad, and it's not about making money in the sport. It's about winning trophies. That's who I want to be with. Um, not a bad year to come up for negotiation. Yeah, though. I should have waited. <laughs> <laughs> I did it too soon. I did it in the middle of the year. I should have waited to the end of the year. But uh, I'm not sure it would have made a difference. Um, but, but yeah. How, how about this? Uh, how long would you like to continue as a full-time driver? I don't feel like I can answer that question right now. I don't know. And a lot of it depends on my, my balance and how I do it and what my kids get into um, and what I'm missing, right? Bottom line is I can't make this money doing anything else, right? <laughs> right? Like I am born and bred to be a race car driver. That's what I'm really, really good at. Well, he's got this year and five more on the next contract. So he's got six more years in the bank. And that gets him up to 37, 38. And then, I don't know. My gut is 39 to 41. He'll be 39 years old to 41 years old. Somewhere in there, he's going to hang it up. And I love what I'm doing. I love winning at this level. This is my dream. I'm living my dream. So to just end my dream right now doesn't seem like it's in the cards. Um, now you fast forward five, six, seven years from now, you know, now you have a, you know, 10, 12 year old son, you got, you know, a eight year old, four year old, five year old. You, then you got to start thinking about, okay, what can I cut out of my life to make sure I'm, I'm a good dad. I can tell you one thing, I'm not going to sit home and <laughs> that's not who I am. I also know Joey and I know that he would drive me crazy. He would drive himself crazy didn't have something to do all the time. Uh, I know even the off season, I feel like is, is a grind. I mean, he'll sit on the couch for 10 minutes and go, Oh my gosh, what are we doing? Like we need to do something with our lives. We're losers. I'm like, dude, we are not losers. We are going to watch a show. We, we, we won't even watch a movie. I have to come up with activities for not only my five-year-old and my two-year-old, but also my husband. And what do you think you would want to do after you're finished driving full-time? Um, I really enjoy doing TV, um, and so that, that would probably be the direction I would want to go. I've done a lot of these Xfinity races lately from up in the booth and, and calling the races, and uh, it's, it's enjoyable for me. Uh, so right now it sounds like a pretty sweet gig, but it's just too soon. In what way have your kids given you more of an appreciation for your parents? Everyone thinks it, right? Your, your parents are idiots, right? <laughs> when you're young, and then you have kids, and you're like, Oh God, like my parents were a lot smarter than I gave them credit for. I think everybody goes through some level of that one way or another. Um, you know, and so yeah, your, your perspective changes for your parents a lot. My mom committed her life to, to her kids. Seeing that commitment now uh, probably means even, even more, right? Since you have kids and things like that. And they led by example. I want my son to see me work. Like I, I, that's what I saw my dad do. I saw my dad run a garbage company from the ground floor, right? I, my dad, very rarely did I see him suit and tie sitting in an office, like not who he is. Like he does not lead from, from an elevated place looking down at his, his employees and his business. That man is down in the trenches with you. More times than not did I see my dad in raggedy old blue jeans with grease all over him coming home. It's work ethic, you know, it was instilled in me and it was tough love with Joey and our daughter, Danielle. It was like, you love the hell out of them. 
but you're not getting, you're going to earn it. You get nothing for free. My father always said, if it's for free, don't even talk to the people because you get nothing for nothing. My dad just runs. He just runs from place to place to place to place, like physically runs. As I get older, I, you become your parents a lot of times. I've seen a lot of that in myself that I'm, he, I'm, as, I'm as crazy as he is. I wasn't probably the greatest of parents because I put, it's that struggle that Joey has. You want to be the best at your business and you want to be the best as a father. When I was home, I was 100% in, but I mean, you know, I, it just uh, running a boatload of trucks and employees, it, it was tough. It's funny he says that. I don't agree. Did I see my dad a lot when I was young, like five and younger? I guess I didn't, but I didn't really even realize it, right? Like, cause on the, like when we did have time, we had a freaking blast together. Did I see him much during the week? I guess I didn't. But when he was at home, he was, he was at home. Like he, he was with us and we had a lot of fun. Uh, and he taught me a lot of lessons. And I guess, so even when he says he wasn't a good dad when I was young, like I think it's a bunch of hoopla because I was watching him work. Yeah. And I think I was probably taking him more than, I, than he realized and even I realized. How would you best explain the, the financial and time investment that he made? So he grew his, his garbage company, 60-something trucks, a great sold out to waste management and said, I'm out of here. Uh, moved it out of Connecticut, moved down south. And from that point on, for the next 10 years, he committed his life to his kids. He was going racing with me. He worked on the cars. He, he treated my racing stuff like he was running his business still. Right. And so, I mean, that's a lot of reasons why we won. Right. He was full committed into this. And, and I'm watching you talk about it now. Like you can tell, like it means. Absolutely. To you. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I can't go race a car by myself. Right. You know, you're 10 years old. You, you can't work on a car by yourself. You barely know what you're doing. You can't lift the car up. That's for sure. You're going to hurt yourself. You, you, you're, you can't drive yourself to the racetrack. You're 10 years old. Right? Like, this wasn't just occasional. This was weekend. Week it, out. it was every day. How, when he was nine years old, was he able to get in races that required you to be at least 12? I forged a birth certificate and I put him in and he won two races. And then it got on the internet how this 12-year-old won two races. Well, we drove four hours up to Charlotte to run a Legends car race and uh, Humpy Wheeler called me and says, Tommy, you have two uh, birth certificates in the file here. Oh, they forgot to take one out, huh? So we got we got slapped and had to move to you know back to Bandoleros a little bit there. And then eventually your kids get older and they gotta they gotta you gotta do it on your own. And I think that's where we had a bit of a hard time kind of having some separation because we built that bond and he felt so invested into my career throughout all that. And then it kind of got a little challenging for a minute because now, Dad, I can't have you here anymore. Like, I got to be a man. I got to do it on my own. But I still want you there. I just want you as a dad. Right? Just be my dad. What, what did that process entail for you? You first recognize kind of the situation, right, of, of what's going on. And, and you're young, and you're like, I don't know if I can do it on my own, right? You're 19 years old in a professional sport that I'm getting my butt kicked in right now. Can I, can I do this on my own? Like, and maybe he doesn't think I can do it on my own at that point either, right? And so... You know, I just needed him for, for guidance at that point. Um, and I think it took both of us a second to realize that and then try to understand how that fits in. He needed somebody better than me. And when Warren came, his manager today, Warren had his back and brought it to another level. And it was a level that I, I didn't, I'm a pilgrim. I, I'm old school, you know, and you need that new blood. And 
when they put those two together, I looked in the mirror, I said, these guys don't need me no more. I says, they're smarter than I am. It took a little bit of time. It, it wasn't the prettiest all the time, but it ended up, ends up being good. I can see how it happens. And I learned, I mean, I learned a lot of lessons from it too, right? Because I can see myself doing the same thing, right? Before you know it, I'm, I'm all in too, and I'm doing it. But I, you got to pull yourself back sometimes and let your kids fall. And that's just part of life. And I try to put them in a good situation. He took advantage of it through his hard work and effort, talent, et cetera. Joey is not the most talented race car driver in NASCAR. I can tell you that right now. I, I think he's highly talented, but the intangibles make him better than anybody, I believe. You obviously had as quick of an ascent as anybody in, in, in the sport. I'm curious what you remember from the first time you heard Mark Martin make <laughs> those comments and then the day you signed the deal with JGR. The question was, if you can replace your seat with anybody, who would it be? He said, Joey Logano. I'm 15 years old. I can't, obviously, but he said my name. So that moment, he said that we raced the next day and won the Pro Cup race, which time for a 15-year-old kid to win at that time in that series, pretty tough. It was a pretty big deal. And so it, like, it is a perfect storm. And before you know it, we had Ganassi, Gibbs, and Roush. We had three contracts in front of us as a 15-year-old that had a driver development program to where they were going to pay for our stuff and it's gonna go just like this. Boom, boom, boom. Go Xfinity racing, cup racing. Right after that, here's your pay. Here's, you know, seven years. Next seven years of your life right here. As a 15 year old kid, like, it's just, it's unheard of, right? That just doesn't happen. When Mark Martin talks, people listen because he's one of the most well-respected race car drivers that NASCAR ever had. All of a sudden, everybody had their eye on him. The impact you think having that kind of attention and early success at that age had on you was what? Um, I just made my head big. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, next thing you know, you, you realize that everyone's good and maybe you're not as good as you thought. You know, Randy LaJoy, a good friend of ours, when they named him sliced bread, that wasn't, that's, that's not good, you, you know, because you look like an entitled child, but all of that, I don't regret it because that's what made him the man who he is today too. That gave him some tough skin for sure. And even to this day, like I said, like I, I know I'm pretty good, but I know I'm not the most talented out there. So I have to outwork them. It's and, the only way I'm going to win. And you've made the comment something to the effect of you feel like you didn't work as hard as you could have early on. Mm -hmm. um, how so? Because I, I didn't work on my craft until I was 19 years old. I didn't study anything. I didn't go through my own races. I didn't, like, I was just fast and I won. Like, it literally was too easy for me that I wasn't learning valuable lessons to make me good when I got there. And your dad told me you did not want to leave uh, Joe Gibbs Racing um, and, and that you could not accept that you were going to lose your ride because they were like family. I, I grew up in the Gibbs shop. Like that's where I, I, a lot of my teenage years were at. Half of my teenage years were there. Um, and so the people that you get to know, you go to lunch with, you, right, you work on cars with, um, 
and you eventually know everybody that works there. And to just leave hurt because those are re those relationships. The day my final race at Gibbs is in Miami, it was like literally like race is over, grabbed my helmet and I was like, well, nice working with you. <laughs> nice knowing you. Yeah, that's kind of what it was. Like, I gotta go kick your ass next year. <laughs> like, that's, that's my job now. And just, it was a weird moment. What would you say your lowest point was? At my lowest point, and I don't know if my wife even remembers this, we were gonna eat dinner. And it just, it just all kind of hit me, right? Like, he kind of knew it was all happening. I think I had NASCAR radio on. Uh, they were talking about me. He was talking about, like, just all these things that, like, I wasn't that good and that I'm gonna be replaced by Kenseth and, and all these things that I, I already knew. But it was like, it was just that moment. I just, just like, that was it. Um, and it's, it's like the moment it hit me, it was real. How did uh, that come out in you? It sucked. How did it come out? I cried like a baby, man. I just, I thought my career was over. I was talking to, you know, Brittany, and, and, you know, I was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do the rest of my life. Like, my options at that moment was to drive Xfinity for Gibbs, or maybe have another opportunity at Petty, possibly, right? But it, neither one was where I was, right? At the time, and if I go down, I'm probably not coming back up to Xfinity. So I'm like, I, I felt like my career's over. I'm not gonna be a NASCAR champion like I want it to be. What, uh, recalling that right now, uh, uh, still affects you? Yeah. I, I mean, what is yeah. it about it that still kind of touches you? It was the fear of, of not being a race car driver, right? Like it was the, all the eggs in one basket. He's kind of like, holy crap, I don't have any, any other craft. I don't have anything else that I'm really good at. I don't know what I would do. And I think that it also pushed him and put a fire under his butt. And I remember that he won Pocono and that was kind of the, the big race. When he won Pocono, and I that probably the tough, one of the toughest things I ever had to do in my life was stick my head in that window right after he won and say, you don't have a ride. I need help trying to find somebody to, you know, so you got to make it public that you're looking for a ride. And the difference that win and those comments in the post-race interview uh, made, do you think, were what? I think the win, you, you know, was big. Penske turned us down and then that unfortunate situation with A.J. Allmendinger when he got set aside. So that, you know, with Joey winning in the meantime, and then that door opening, it, it was kind of ideal for Joey. I got the most incredible second chance when, when the 22 opened up, that I approached everything completely different. Because I knew this is it. I better, like, don't screw this one up. Uh, and 30 wins, two championships later, here we are. I feel like people like that, successful people like that, when, again, when they get torn down or somebody says they're not good enough, they're not going to be done. They're just going to come back way harder. What do you think you learned about yourself from going through all of that? That I'm not very good. <laughs> <laughs> it was the biggest piece of humble pie I could have eaten. And, and now I have learned how to, to win. I've learned how to lose, more importantly. Those four years of my life are the, the moments that have completely shaped who I am. Do you think you would have ended up having the success you've had no. if not for those struggles? Not a chance. Not a chance.
No, because I'm, I'm a way better race car driver now and a way better person now because of it. The hair. Um, <laughs> take, take me to you the... Like it? Uh, I liked it a lot. I mean, you look like so much younger. I know. Um, but take me to that uh, August uh, 2019 haircut. Um, you've, oh, uh, just, you've just come home and Brittany sees you. Yeah. I only got a haircut uh, down the road from where we lived and... I came home and, and Brittany looks at the back of my head. She says, what did they do to you? I'm like, what do you mean what they do to me? And she says, the, the back of your head, they like completely like killed your haircut. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. So she shows me a picture of the back of my head and it's like, there's just spots everywhere. So Brittany gets pissed. <laughs> Brittany goes to the place to get the haircut and is like, demands like our money back and like, I'm like, Brittany, no, we're not going out. She's like, no, we're going. I had never seen somebody with like spots all over. And so I thought this lady screwed up his hair. Like what in the world? So again, I, I'm loud and I talk a lot and I went there and it was not nice and I was not friendly. What, what did you part, say? I just, I just told her, you messed up my husband's hair. Like, what did you do? Like, what is like, what, are, how are you even here? What did you do? It was, it was not a shining moment in my life. Fast forward a little bit. I realized I have alopecia. Uh, we went back there and said, we're sorry and gave a very generous tip. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, Good for you for going back though. Well, yeah, we had to, okay. are you kidding me? <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, I have auto autoimmune disorder. But you start Googling at, at the yeah, time. Yeah, you Google, what, what do I got? Well, my wife's the, the professional WebMD Googler. I mean, you go on Google and you get a nosebleed and I'm telling you, you've got cancer. You've got something wrong with you. And so that's me. It's, it's, there's always, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's something wrong. What are we going to do? Because after a couple of weeks, the spots were still They're there. still there. Yeah. Like they're not growing back yeah. at all. They're just bald spot. Eventually you, you just accept what it is. And you're like, okay, I have alopecia. Like it could be, could be a lot worse. Right. Um, right? And, it, and it's just in spots and it's not like, I mean, other people have it to where they lose their eyebrows and they lose every, like everything on them. Um, and so I was like, well, I, that's what I got, but you know, is, is what it is. It has been kind of eye opening to, to just learn about it. And so it's basically, it's just an autoimmune disease and they, you have flare ups. And so stress can bring on flare ups. He still had some of the spots. And so hair club came in and, and he's been working with them and they've been great and kind of helped him bring his confidence up. What uh, made you decide to uh, do something about it? I wanted to, you know, do something that to kind of stay, stay young looking, right? I'm, I was losing my hair and, and you, know, you can do a lot of different things. And we formed a relationship with Hair Club and they had a great option for me. And I make fun of them. I, you know, I pick on them. You know, I, I keep busting his ass a little bit. You know, I like to do that. What, you know, what do you say? Oh. Bob's got the old hair. What, what do you got? Oh, you're going to try to be like the old man, I keep saying. Yeah, so, but it, it, it's funny. I like it, though. I'm, I'm proud that he did it and stepped up to the plate. The first time you saw him after, you know, he had the work done, what did you think? He says it's not the reaction he was hoping for. I was, I thought it looked great. I was just shocked. And I'm really honest. So it's just finding like the, the right thing for him and making sure like the haircut's right and this and that. And so just kind of tweaking it a little bit. He looks great. Your takeaway from the whole experience is what? It's been great. And, and there's nothing wrong with talking about it, right? I, for, for whatever reason, it's something that people don't like talking about, like the alopecia piece of it. Like people try to hide it or not talk about it. Shoot, I was like, 
I just, I, I, what am I gonna do? Like, I'm gonna walk around with it and people are gonna ask me what it is, I'm gonna say, yeah, I, this is what it is. And there's, you know what, there's thousands and thousands of people that are dealing with it too. And with this platform, you can actually kind of, you can help people by just talking about that and saying, hey, I have it too and I'm not ashamed of it, right? Like it's, cards I was dealt that's what I got right oh well like you know like you deal with it and and it's and it's really sad for for I think it's harder for girls for sure and guys can kind of get with it and a little bit more but um hair club kind of you know they knew that I had that um they do a lot of great things with kids too with alopecia and 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 giving them hair systems that that you can help with that because kids are kids are mean you know sometimes so uh you know to help you know with kids confidence and stuff like that and um, you know, I mean, and just typical, you know, male pattern balding is, that's part of, part of life for a lot of people. And it doesn't mean you, you can't do anything about it. The foundation. Um, how did the idea come about? Well, the idea of second chances came from my second chance at Team Penske and how I approached it so differently. And I thought, man, if someone had a second chance in life, how different would they be? So we've really geared the, the foundation towards foster families. Um, and foster kids in particular. There's countless kids that are born into the spot they can be in. And it's not their fault. And if you are a product of your environment, they're probably gonna do the same thing. We have to break that cycle. If you can change a, a life in your lifetime, I'd say you'd have a successful life. It's countless, the amount of lives that I feel like we have saved at this point. Um, and that's, that's the why, right? Like, that's the why. My wife asked the best question to me one, one night, and this is why we started the foundation, is that I was so like 100% racing. It's all that mattered to me. She goes, well, when, when you're on your deathbed, do you want like trophies around you? Or do you want people around you? And that one just like, it hit me. And I was like, oh. Both, that was my answer, I want both. Because the platform from winning lets you do really, really big things from a charitable aspect. And that platform of just talking to people and reaching out to people and being the light in the room, right? Being the person that, that makes people smile um, or impacts somebody's life in a positive way, that platform's way bigger when you win than when you lose, <laughs> right? So I can do both the goals with the foundation or what? It's impacting as many families as, as we possibly can, as many kids as we possibly can, um, you know, and, and keep that growth and keep, you know, encouraging people to live a life of generosity, right? I mean, that, that's, that's the number one thing I can do. Attitudes are so contagious uh, that, that it really can be spread a lot, right? And, and maybe someone watching this today, right, is inspired to do something big or positive in their life or, or generous in their life. That's, that's a hard day's work. One of the most impactful and best things that we do uh, is called the Jail Kids Crew. And it's all started because a, a little guy named Jake Leatherman, uh, he passed away and he was a huge race fan. We went to his funeral and we all wore our, our race suits. And he was just a diehard fan that none of us ever met. And it just felt like the Biggest, I left here mad, I was sad, but I was mad that we never took the time to meet him 
while he was with us, like when it really mattered, right? Like being at his funeral was fine, but boy, it was a missed opportunity. Um, so we started a jail kids crew and honored Jake to, to give kids that are huge race fans with life-changing things that have happened in their life, whether it's something life-threatening or maybe it's someone from foster care or, or that, it, that is going through something in their life that are huge race fans, and we bring them to the racetrack and give them the experience of a lifetime. We give them a race suit that is identical to mine, uh, and we make them part of the team. JL Kids Crew has probably been one of the most impactful because I actually get to spend time and talk to the family and know about what they're going through and just get to know them as people. As a race car driver, you can go wherever the heck you want to go. And so why not bring a little kid that's going through a hard time uh, and give them the experience of, of a lifetime, right? And it's it's really cool. Tell about Gavin. Gavin's a good friend now. Um, Gavin, he was a, my first Make-A-Wish thing I've ever done. Uh, I was 19 or whatever. Um, he wanted to, to meet me and go to the Daytona 500. And so Make-A-Wish reached out and said, hey, would you like to meet him? I said, oh, yeah. So we flew to Arkansas. Um, we surprised him at his school. Did, I guess the first thing I thought is, is this real or is they somebody like, you know, playing a trick on me? That's Logano's friend, Gavin Grubbs. And, you know, it took me a few minutes to warm up to it. And then I was like, okay, this is, this is real. And this is really awesome. From there, uh, the relationship just kept growing with his family, with Gavin himself. And as he's gotten older, we've done so many, there's more stories than you have time for <laughs> about Gavin. What do you think caused you guys to hit it off? I think the fact that we're just both kind of goofy dudes and, you know, we have similar personalities and, you know, we make a lot of the same jokes when we're around each other. It was in our wedding. He introduced me when we won our first championship. He introduced me on stage. He keeps a great attitude and I tell you, his family's the greatest people you have ever met. So it's an amazing relationship we've that came out of a Make-A-Wish, which is really cool. I've seen a lot of people at the racetracks that don't like the way Joey drives and, you know, he's... He's one of the more controversial drivers in NASCAR, but I've never had a talk with somebody who didn't like him that's met him. Thanks for listening to my chat with Joey Logano. For more content from my interview, including a tour of his Clutch Production Studio and a wild ride in his drift truck where we burned off multiple sets of tires, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Plus, this week we're offering up a new behind-the-scenes podcast episode that goes up tomorrow morning. It includes myself and the crew sharing stories from our time with Logano, so make sure to check that out. Also, remember to leave us a rating and review. Thanks again for listening.